Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I apologize for the little hiatus we were on for the past two weeks, but I was a little bit under the weather and at the same time overwhelmed with a lot of patients to see at work. So I listened to my body and I took some time off. But today I'm really excited to have on the program someone whose research I have followed for years and it was an honor to have her on, Dr. Karen Silbernagel. She is an associate professor and associate chair at the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware in Newark, Delaware. She has a clinical scientist with a strong record of mentoring clinical scientists, primary advisor for 10 PhD students, completed and eight current PhD students. Her expertise is in orthopedics and musculoskeletal injury with a focus on tendon and ligament injury. She has been a physical therapist for over 30 years and performed research for over 20. At the University of Delaware, she is the principal investigator of the Delaware Tendon Research Group and the Delaware ACL Research Group. We talk about this later in the episode, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Her work has been directly integrated into the clinical guidelines for treatment of patients with tendon injuries. She has presented her research at numerous conferences and published in peer-reviewed journals, 100-plus published articles to date. She also has been invited to speak about her her research at conferences nationally and internationally. As the principal investigator of the Tendon Research Group at the University of Delaware, she is working to advance understanding of tendon injury and repair that tailored treatments can be developed. The Delaware Tendon Research Group is an interdisciplinary team focused on improving treatment outcomes for tendon injuries. Her research approach is to evaluate tendon health and recovery by quantifying tendon composition, structure, and mechanical properties, as well as patients' impairments and syndromes. Her research is funded by the NIH Foundation for Physical Therapy, Swedish Research Council for Sports Science, and the Swedish Research Council. So today... We talk about tendinopathy research, what it's been in the past, the present, and the future. It's a great conversation. We also tie it into what is applicable clinically. So for all you clinicians out there, this is a must listen. And of course, Karen will be one of the featured speakers at the fourth annual World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy, which will be taking place near Copenhagen in Nyborg at the end of August. We talk about it during the podcast, so be sure to head over to the notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com to find all about how you can attend the World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy. So a huge thank you to Dr. Silbernagel, and of course, to all the folks over at the World Conference of Sports Physical Therapy for making this happen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on and really excited to talk about tendinopathy research and treatment and clinical application. Super excited. Thank you. I'm equally excited to be here to talk about my favorite topic. Yeah. And later on, we will talk about, we'll give a little sneak peek to everyone um, about your topic 
at the Fourth World Congress of Sport Physical Therapy in Denmark happening August 26th and 27th. So for those of you who want that fun sneak peek, you'll have to wait until the end of the interview for that. Um, Because what we're going to start with is I really want to know the historical perspective of tendinopathy research and how it's been translated into the clinic. So you, as we spoke before we went on, 18 years ago, you wrote your thesis. And so you've got a really great vantage point to look back on what what tendinopathy research was, where we're at, And then later on, maybe we'll talk about where you see it going, but I'll just hand the mic over to you so you can kind of give us that historical perspective. Thank you. And I think that um, as we spoke about too, I feel like I'm getting older because more and more my historical perspective kind of comes in, but I think it's important when I started as a physical therapist. So I started clinically in um, 1990. And when I started, um, we had in my courses and things, you know, talk about muscle, you talked about ligament injuries and all these things. And then the tendon was just this rope that went in between the muscle and the bone. And that was kind of it. And then when I started practicing and I worked in Baltimore and we worked a lot with, with baseball players and things, and everybody had tendonitis, was supraspinatus tendonitis, Achilles tendonitis. So everybody had this inflammation in the tendon that we never really talked about. So okay, I felt like I was no dummy. I had learned medical terminology. So I know itis was inflammation. So obviously they had inflammation in this tendon because that was the name was. So I thought our treatments then really were treating the word. So we were really trying to rest because it was acute inflammation. We tried ice, we did ionophoresis and phonophoresis, and they weren't allowed to load and all these kind of things. And surprisingly, hopefully some patients got better anyway. Um, But that really sparked my interest into tendon in general. Like, what is this? And then later on in the 1990s, um, there came out more and more research. Kerbin and Stanish started thinking about, you know, Achilles tendon were hurt more maybe when they were loaded eccentrically and running. So maybe we need to train that. And people are starting more thinking about how do we exercise and mostly maybe the lower extremity um, tendon or tendonitis. And then we had more research looking at if there was inflammatory components in the tendon. So if you took out cells and things too, there wasn't actually an acute inflammation. So this itis maybe wasn't true. And that really opened the door for, if it's not an acute inflammation, what do we do? So then in the late 1990s, beyond Kerbis and Stanish, there was another researcher, Niesen Vertoman, that looked at concentric versus eccentric loading. And then Håkan Alfredsson in Sweden too, started to have patients that were waiting to get surgery. And he started like, okay, we're really going to load them. You know, we're going to heavy load them because maybe that's what they need if not an acute inflammation and started to see people get better. If you actually load in them instead of resting them at the same time, we did our, I started my PhD things too. We started looking at, okay, should it be more overload? And we used our pain monitoring model versus the standard treatment that was, you know, circulation exercises, bilateral up and down, but not really trying to load it heavy. And what we started to see those exercise program that loaded more had better effect than the more like generic protective things kind of things too. So that's really when, when things started to change. Right. So um, I think the historical perspective is we didn't do anything and we started to do things and we had these huge jump in outcomes, which is brilliant. 
in our studies then was, you know, we, we were looking more at, you know, the Silbernagel protocol comprehensive. We use pain monitoring model to guide, but also the loading and the exercises to kind of load beyond and not be worried about the pain. Because if the pain wasn't acute inflammation, maybe it wasn't so worrisome. And loading the tendon was painful, but that was also the treatment. So we needed something to kind of understand how much could you really load. So we started with this exercises and being able to load and having kind of achieved this kind of change. So I think that was really the, the ultimate thing that happened in the late 1990s, early 2000. And it was the combination of Kirby and Stanish, Hoke and Alfredson did, we had programs and um, kind of moving that forward. And there's something that you said in, well, a lot of what you said in there that uh, I just want to pull out if we can. So one thing that you just said is, is pain worrisome? And I think that's a really, really provocative question because if you ask the person living with the pain, yeah. And so how as the therapist, if we're treating someone with a tendinopathy, let's say it's an Achilles tendinopathy and the treatment induces pain, how do we communicate to the patient that it's not as worrisome as you think it is? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think that's why the pain monitoring model that we've had, and really the pain monitoring model started with Roland Tomei, who was my advisor in patellofemoral pain. And that's when we applied it. And I think from the patellofemoral pain, we kind of seen the same path, right? Just resting, it doesn't help. You need to get strong. And then we're like, well, the tendon seems to be the same thing. And I think the pain monitoring model has been a lot of discussion. Is you know, we go up to five, it's okay, and those things. And to tell you the truth, I really don't care if it's five or four or whatever. I think it's that communication to the patient and communication that waiting for this pain to become zero, if that's the goal. And what I say to everybody with, um, and when I lecture, and you might've heard that too, I'm like, well, if that's a goal, I can tell the patient, come in here, lie down on my nice little plinth here in the office. You lie there and I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. And when I come back, you don't have any pain. So I've treated your pain, right? So I, I kind of start, I think with the education. So the point is, if you just want zero pain, don't do anything, but that's really not what you want. You want to be able to move. So if you want to be able to move, we also need to get this tissue to tolerate more loading. And in order to do that, we actually need to load it so it recovers. So I spend a lot of time kind of explaining, talking about this thing. So that there might be some pain when we're loading it, but without load, you're not getting anywhere. And what happened to a lot of people, they had some pain, they rest, they did less, and they tried to do something at pain and they just de decline. And I talk a lot about hardening your tissues, right? This is loading, hardening your tissues. So the conversation is my goal with treatment is to increase the tolerance of your tissue over time while keeping your pain level the same. So that's kind of the thing said. So, so your pain level, I'm fine with that. You're not going to rupture, which is a good thing to say for Achilles tendon rupture. That's like the big catastrophe. If that's not an issue, then we can follow it too. And then we have the discussion, you know, above five, it's not good or I don't know. You've seen Twitter. Sometimes Twitter yeah. complains that I use five, right? And I, mm -hmm. I, mean, you know, I really don't care. I think the point is there is a point of pain when pain goes from it's uncomfortable to ouch. I don't want it to be ouch. I want it to be. And five seems to be around in that realm, right? And people can understand the difference in that. And it's, you know, you have the other conversation with the people that says, but I have really high pain tolerance. So this might not work for me. 
Well, you know, it's, it's subjective. So I always tell them absolutely works even better for people like you. So, yeah, you know, sometimes maybe I'm a little silly, but that's, so I think that's kind of the point of really using it. So for me, the pain monitoring model is a, a way for discussing it and then using it. Um, some people feel like it's focusing too much on the pain. I actually think it does the opposite, right? Because it removes the worrisome and it put a number on it and it's just a number in everything else. And then we use training diaries. So I use training diaries. You write down, you know, morning pain, worst, lowest, everything else that you do. And then if I have three or four weeks, we can start comparing. And then people actually start seeing the numbers change with the activity or the number stays the same. So I'm using it more of a, of a, of, of a descriptor because if you just ask somebody, do you have pain? It's like, they're going to answer what they did earlier. Right. And they, none of us remember, we don't remember how much pain was when we're not painful. And so that's kind of how we're using it in my description. Yeah. I think, thank you for that. I think that's great. Um, and that also kind of answered my next question is how much load, how much can you load? How much load is, is, is enough? How much is too much? And I think you kind of answered that within that, but do you want to expand on that a little bit? Or I feel yeah, like, so I think, that, I think that's within the pain monitoring model too, right? We're looking at that, but then you also have knowledge based on how the cells responds, how the tendon responds. And I think that's where the next thing in, in, in the history perspective is now we're starting to see, you know, which protocol is better. So now they're comparing silver nagel and ultrasounds or eccentric loading. And it's all these. And really, when you compare them, it's not that big of a difference, right? The heavy, slow resistance. I just say that, you know, Håkan Alfredson was in northern Sweden. He trained twice a day. I'm from Gothenburg in the middle. We do once a day. And then you go down to Denmark. They did the three times a week for heavy, slow, right? So Danish people are lazier than, <laughs> or, you know, but I think the point is when you're looking at the data, actually the outcomes are not that different. You know, there might be some, you know, we can always argue that we're more satisfied with this, but when you're looking at the mechanical properties and things, you don't see that big of a difference anymore. And I think because I think you reached a saturation point, right? We've done no loading to loading. Now everybody does good. And I think for us as PTs, now we're trying to manipulate more and more in that little realm that for everybody, we might not see it when we do big studies comparing one group to the other. Because I think you, we need to talk about individualized instead or precision rehabilitation and things too. So I think kind of that's where we're getting at. And there've been great studies coming on from Anne-Sophie Augergaard in Denmark, from her thesis, looking at moderate versus heavy and patella tendon and so I think that for the loading, you need to load them. You need to use the pain monitoring model. We need to do the progressive loading. But I, as a PT, would less worry about if, I, if you did two sets too little or five pounds too less. I think that's less of an issue. Yeah. And it, when you said individual, I actually just wrote that down, individualized care as you were speaking, because if all of the different protocols have basically the same outcome, then does it come down to what can the patient do given the constraints of their life or their schedule or, you know, their job? So do you have someone who can do something three times a day? Or do you have, does this person might do better three times a week with heavy, slow resistance? Or, you know, it really depends on what the patient can do because the best protocol I would assume is the one the patient is compliant with. 
And I think you and I have been around way too long for this too, right? So because, you know, when you started, when you were, at least when I started, when I was young, right, you were so excited for every exercise. So I guess kept on adding to my poor patients, like removing something. No, no, that's a really good exercise and you're adding. And what I'm getting to is that if I can get you to do something consistent with two or three exercises, I'm much better off giving you two or three exercises that you do consistently than trying to think that I'm going to give you a ton of things. And I have patients now that are, you know, they, they come back, they come back every four or five weeks and see me, or they send me an email and they do their exercises. Cause I told them to do for Achilles, like bilateral three sets of 15, and then do unilateral three sets of 15 and do that for your rest of your life. Like you're brushing your teeth. And I'm like, you can probably go down to doing them less, or you can do heavier in the gym. And some people don't go to the gym. They don't want to do that. So you kind of modify it to kind of get some of the exercises there too. So I think that I think the biggest key is that you need to load, you need to do things. And then um, instead of getting too hyped up for all the specifics, I think that's really where we're moving forward. And I had, I had a lady that, you know, recently with insertional tendinopathy that had been to the doctor, been to all these other clinics and they've thrown all these things on or didn't get better. And then it was massaging it and it was like dry needling and the instrument assisted and those kind of things too. She was just getting worse. And I'm like, well, I just think you should do these three exercises once a day and she's doing it. And she's like, I'm walking, I'm not limping, you know? Um, so sometimes in, in our eagerness to do good, I think we, we get a little crazy. Yeah. And that brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about. And it's sort of the shiny new object syndrome that a lot of people will get. And we spoke a little bit about this before going on the air. And I said, a lot of it is sort of the theatrics around different kinds of shiny new objects. So how, how would you address that to say younger clinicians uh, in, you know, obviously talking about tendinopathy? Yeah. So I think that that one thing, and it's still hard. I mean, I teach doctor physical therapy students and then they go out and they completely forgot what I said. Right. So I think there, there are certain things, everybody wants to go to clinical course and learn something more hands-on and something more specific. But I think that to me, the attitude is what, what we really try to teach them is like, what tissue is it? How does that tissue respond? Right. To start understanding the underlying mechanisms, because then you have, a, then you have an understanding to build the other thing on instead of not having the understanding and just thinking that you're doing things. And then, then you might be changing the, the, the shiny objects without thinking about the mechanism. So I'm very much a mechanism person to try to think about why would we do it? But you also need to realize that just putting the hand on somebody is very, very strong um, treatment effect. That's not, that's the same as listening to somebody and paying attention and, I have a colleague now, Greg Hicks, that's done finishing a trial looking at strengthening specifically for low back and, and older. And the control group who got hop, hop pack and massage as the placebo control. And they did really well too, right? So even we have mechanism, we should not be afraid of doing things that might help the patient in that sense. But we, the explanations and things for what you're doing, you got to be really careful for, right? And I think that I have a great effect on my patients because I think I have a good program. We know what we're doing. I know what works, but I'm also not underestimating that if you can Google me, you're going to get better just by coming, seeing me because you're going to assume that at least I know what I'm doing. So, you know, I utilize that effect too. So we just need to thinking about what we're doing. And I, I'm very scared of chasing the shiny objects for the wrong reason, because maybe that shiny object would be really good for a specific reason. And if we throw it on everything, we've lost what it's good for. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's you beat me to it. I was just going to say also people probably come to you knowing your background and the work that you do. So they're coming in like primed, like this is she is the expert. I'm in the right hands. I know this is going to, you know, this is a person who's going to help me. And that's a huge part of the rehab process is that trust that you have in the practitioner and that therapeutic relationship. But it also sounds like you're giving realistic expectations and describing realistic expectations to your patients, which again, takes time. And I know a lot of therapists like, well, I only have a half an hour with them. How can I, how could I spend 15 or 20 minutes talking to them? So what, what would you say to that kind of a comment? Yeah. And I think that's another thing that happens over the years. Like, I feel like I do less and talk more, but that might be just my personality too. But, um, but I think that that's uh, without that understanding when you start that therapeutic alliance or understanding why you're you're doing, you're not going to get anywhere and patients and especially patients with tendon injuries and tendinopathies. I mean, it takes six months to a year. I tell them that right away. It takes six months a year. You can do what I say. I'm pretty sure you're going to get really well. You might not be hundred percent. I'm going to get you definitely to 80 or 90%. If you don't do what I say, we can meet here in a year again. It doesn't bother me. Right. So it's handy because I think when I was younger, I tried to take on the problem and I I'm handing it back right away. I'm like, it doesn't bother me if you doesn't, you don't do it. You know, you can just come back to understanding. And I think the other part from, from the young clinicians where tendon injuries is the biggest thing is this is not a quick fix. This takes time. And what you see a lot with the younger clinicians or maybe younger, my younger self too, is like you're, you do treatment for two, three weeks and they're not there yet. And then you get worried. And when you get worried, the patient get worried and then you start changing things. And then, then they get more worried because you don't seem like, you know what you're doing, right? You know, it's setting the expectations. This is what you're going to do. It's not any cool exercises. This is going to take time and having the training diaries that I follow over time. And they say, you know what? I don't think much of happening. I'm like, well, you were here three months ago. You could only walk one mile with a pain of five. And now you're jogging four miles. I'm like, I think that's a pretty good improvement, right? So having those to kind of working on. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And uh, my next question is, is are all tendons created equal? So we sort of alluded to an Achilles tendon and, and a patellar tendon, or we can talk about, you know, um, a golfer's elbow or tennis elbow. So when we're talking about all these different tendons, are they all created equal? And can we kind of throw the same treatments at each one, regardless of the part of the body? Yeah. So again, it's kind of the same thing that a a tendon is a tendon in certain tendon structures, right? But all tendons are meant to connect muscle to bone and allow for mobility and they help us. However, the design of those tendons are also meant for what they're good for, right? So the Achilles tendon is the biggest tendon in the body because it generates a lot of force and helps us move, move. Patella tendon is a little bit different. It's a big, but it also tries to help, um, change the angle of force around the knee. So then we put a patella in. So all of a sudden we have compression and tendons are not very good for compression. The rotator cuff is more of a flatter tendon that has a lot of curvature and the compression there is a problem, right? So the flatter tendon combines more um, spread the force versus a round tendon, the Achilles tendon is. And then you're thinking about tendons in the hand, right? They are really long and thin to be able to manipulate the fingers really gently, build up the force gently. So they have different um, 
functions. And as soon as you have different function, the tendon has to be slightly designed differently, which makes if it's designed differently, the treatment or the loading might be needed to be very differently. So I think one of the biggest thing is the tendon is really good for tensile forces, but not a good for compression forces. So for example, the rotator cuff, when you're talking about these overload tears is usually an inferior kind of compression that slowly degenerates. A tear in the Achilles tendon is nothing like that at all. It's a high load that kind of happened because you pulled it apart, just like Play-Doh, you pull it apart from two different ends and it kind of um, can rupture. So I think those are really, really important. What we also see is that lower extremity tendons seem to um, respond fairly similar. They're not as high in central sensitization indexes and don't have those things versus differently when you're looking at upper extremity tendon too. So there are definitely differences. So you need to kind of thinking about the basics that it's not probably an acute inflammation, then we need to treat it. And then you need to start thinking about what does this tendon do? Is it being compressed? Is it flat? What are the other structures, right? So Achilles tendon, you know that is Achilles tendon where your problem is. It's right there, there's not much else. That's why I study it because it's easy to study. Versus the rotator cuff, we talk less about rotator cuff tendinopathy and we talk more about shoulder pain, right? More because mm -hmm. we're not so sure is it purely the tendon that's a problem and other things. At a lot more structures around it than just the Achilles tendon. That can it's not just the Achilles tendon. Sorry, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the little, a little more complicated area of the body, we'll say. Yes. Yeah. So you know, I think it's great to sort of look at that historical perspective, and I love that you kind of talked about where we are now. Where do you see research moving towards uh, in the tendinopathy field? So now we're getting a little bit into what I'm going to talk about in Denmark too. But Perfect. I think one, yes. So one of the big things that we're really working on is that, okay, I felt like we kind of reached this point. We're doing really well with everybody. But again, you know, if you look at average with a big group, we're still not 100% on average, right? Some people are 100% recovered versus some people are not. And why is that? And if we can't manipulate the treatment anymore, I need to figure out who do I treat how, right? We've been there in other areas too. So really what we're doing in our, in our research now is really trying to use the various statistical models and larger group data to really first evaluate what we started to call it tendon health. I'm, I'm really proposing that tendinopathy might be more of a biological disease, more like you talk about knee osteoarthritis. That used to be just wear and tear, and now it's a biological disease. I think tendinopathy needs to be considered the same way. And the reason I say that is because it's not just that the tendon structure had changed or that you have pain. There's so many other variables related to it. Like you have personal factors too, like BMI or diabetes affect tendon differently, cholesterol do. So you have the metabolic factors, you have the personal factors, right? Um, and you have, you know, the fear factors and all these kind of things play a role. So we call that our tendon health model. We really started with function, structure, pain and symptoms and psychosocial factors. And then I realized it was a person too. So we actually have personal factors. And based on that, we're trying to figure out, are there different, because you can't, we can, in clinic, you can treat every person in singular, right? But, but we need to also to have more of the precision health to understand what we do in the health system, understanding are there various groupings? So who should we treat how to be very efficient? And that's some of the research that we're working on now. And we looked at 
my PhD students who are on Hanlon found like we have different groups. We have what we call activity dominant, which might be the ones that we see a lot of them. The runners active, they don't have a lot of symptoms. They don't have a lot of deficits. Tendon is not that bad versus a group that we call structure dominant that are heavier. They have really horrible looking tendon, they have poor function. And then we have a group that we call psychosocial dominant. And maybe the words are not the best, but they're people with higher fear, decrease in function, but the tendon might not be so bad. And when we started thinking about that, well, now you can understand maybe how you can treat them a little differently. And then we can start looking at how should we treat them best and looking at randomized control trials. Because from a researcher perspective, if I threw all of those in and I do the same treatment, some of them might benefit a lot and some of them don't. And then the treatment is zeroed out, right? There is no difference. But then I lost the benefit for the ones that might benefit. And I I lost learning from the ones that didn't benefit that needed something else. Fascinating. And you're going to be talking about this in Denmark. Absolutely. And we have new data, how it changes over time and all those kind of things. Yeah. Well, don't give it all away now. Well, we want people to go to Denmark to see you present this live. Oh, they better Um, come to Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds fascinating. I love the idea of a tendon health structure and I love how it's, it is, seems to be evolving to be more about the whole person, not just someone with a tendon injury. Yeah. Right. Because like you said, it could be like a, two people can have the same injury. It could be, one could be a postmenopausal woman who has the same injury as a young 30 something male runner. Maybe they both have an Achilles tendinopathy, but are you going to treat them exactly the same? Yeah. And I think that's when we need to start thinking about this. Some of the programs are maybe the same, but how do you modify them and Mm -hmm. what are the expectations? And then what are the other things that you can add on to that to really make sure that we get more people up to a hundred percent and and really try to focus on them. And as a researcher, sometimes those things get lost and that makes, that's concerning to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, for one, cannot wait to hear that talk in Denmark. Now, uh, before we Uh, start wrapping things up here. What advice, maybe give three tips, if you want to give more, less, whatever you want, but what would you give to, what tips would you give to clinicians who are treating patients with tendinopathy injuries? I don't know if I want to say injuries, if that's quite the word, but diagnoses, let's say. So what are your top tips? So my top tip is to, to kind of think about what that it is the structure and that structure responds differently than muscle structure and bone structure to thinking about it from that, from the tissue level, when you're designing the treatment program. And I think the number one is tendon takes longer to recover than other tissues. So setting that expectations right away. I mean, it's a clear indication when you're looking at hamstring injuries, is it purely muscle or is it more proximal with a tendon? it's clearly evidence to show that it takes longer. So if you have that expectation and sitting down to explain, but just because it takes longer does not mean a tendon has poor healing. It has very adequate healing. It's just healing that takes a little longer. And sometimes I even explain that that is a good thing because a tendon can last you for a very long time. Like for marathon runners, the Achilles tendon rebounds you so you can run a whole marathon. If your muscle was doing that, you'd be fatigued way earlier and you wouldn't be able to do it. So the low metabolism is beneficial. 
but this is the rehab is going to take your time. So that's one of my biggest thing and taking time to kind of thinking it through that. The other piece of advice is do not panic. And my the clinician in, in our clinic, they tell me back to others what I say, because I always tell the patient right away, you're going to get better. This is going to take time and you're going to have setbacks. And I want to tell clinicians that too. the patients are going to have setbacks. They're going to come, but don't panic when they have a setback. So, you know, it, it just is what it is. And if you set that expectations right away, the patients, when they come in and have a setback, now they're like, yeah, I had my setback, but you told me I would eventually have it, right? Instead of not expecting them, because then we react on a dime. Oh, they're worse today. What am I going to do? And what am I going to change? Like, no, this is part of life. It goes up, it goes down and moving. So I think those two things, and along with really using the pain monitoring model and training diaries are my key things. Great advice. And I love the do not panic because they know when you're panicking. Yes. Right. The I, you know, they see it in your face. And then, like you said, you start throwing everything in the kitchen sink on there and they're like, well, wait a second, what just happened here? I thought you said I could just do this, but I always tell patients like, this is not a linear journey. It's not like you're going up a roller coaster and it's going to be linear and perfect. Like it's going to go up. It's going to dip down. It's going to come up, maybe dip down, but not as much. And then you're going to go up again. And, you know, it's a little bit more of a squiggly line and that's okay. And people really do appreciate that because setting expectations is paramount. I always feel like if I do nothing else, if they hear nothing else, at least they have an idea of what to expect so that it's not craziness. And I think the training diary to me, I use it for any patient for anything. I think that's really key too, because that calms all of us down. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see, let's go back here five weeks, wherever we're at, what you were doing. And then we can see the pattern. And I even had one person that gave me like an Excel spreadsheet and a color coded the pain. And if you looked over like a year, you can see the red and orange decrease and the green was increasing. You know what I mean? Those are the patterns that you want to see. And it's hard to see those in your daily life. So that's why I think that's really important. Yeah. That is a dedicated patient. Yes. I knew dedicated about patient. that too, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, right. <laughs> right. But, um, well, this was great. Where can people find you if they have questions? Uh, maybe you're on social media. Where can people find you? I am on social media at KG Silbernagel. I think I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, it's the main one is that, but I also run the Delaware tendon research group an attendant on a ligament research group. So on Twitter, we also have the UD tendon group. We're also on Facebook and we're also on Instagram. And um, I'm easily found at University of Delaware and Department of Physical Therapy too. Perfect. So um, please feel free to reach out and connect with us, you know, on, on the social media and those kind of things that we're doing. And I'm very excited to discuss these clinical things. And if you don't mind, can we talk a little bit about the Delaware Tending Group? Because you guys have some uh, projects that you're working on. So do you want to tell the listeners about those projects in case, you know, you need recruiting or you need volunteers? So go ahead. Yes, we always need volunteers. So we actually have, we have a lot of ongoing studies, but one of the big ones that NIH funded right now is we're looking at comparing men and women with Achilles tendinopathy. 
So we're up to 145 recruiter patients out of 200. We had a little dip around COVID. So we're actually providing treatment for anybody that is around the Delaware, Philadelphia area. Uh, please feel free to reach out or, or send your patients. Um, we also have ACL studies ongoing. One of the big ones also relating to tendon is um, looking at the recovery from um, patella tendon grafts to see how they change over time. How does that tendon actually recover? And could that, if it doesn't recover fully, can that explain some of the deficits that we do see under ACLs injuries too? Um, we're also hoping to soon start more of looking at insertional Achilles tendinopathy with treatments. We have one study with shockwave treatment. We have studies that we're hoping to start now. We're looking more at metabolic factors and getting the little blood draws and those things. So uh, we have on our website with all of those things going on. So if anybody's interested, please feel free to reach out or look at our website. Perfect. And we'll have a link to that at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this uh, episode. So one click and we'll take you right there. So before we end, I have one question. It's a question I ask everyone and knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? And you can pick whichever age of your younger self you would like. So I'm going to pick myself before I even went to PT school, because uh, what, well, one of my mantras is to always have fun. And I, I will stick to that now and I'll stick to that younger, because if it's not fun, it's not worth doing, even if it's research and those things. So do anything that's fun. But I was did not want to go to school in Sweden. I wanted to do sports medicine. I wanted to go to the U.S., uh, but I was very worried that if I didn't get in um, when I was 20, that I, I wasn't going to go to PT school because it took four years and then I would be too old when I graduated before I was ready. So I wasn't going to go. Luckily, I got in and I stayed on. So I think to, to, to my younger self, it's a really long working life. So just keep on having fun and plugging along and learning more things. And I have taken the really long path to academia with build a clinician for many years and doing those kind of things. So that I'm happy for. So I'm glad I got in and didn't say I wasn't going to do it because who cares if I was 24 or 25? Yeah. And, and that's so young. Yes. But isn't it funny when you're 18, 19, 20, you're like, oh, forget it. I'll be an old person by then. 25. Ugh. behind yeah. the eight ball. When of course, now that we're a little older, we can look back on that and be like, oh my God. Yeah. And thinking? I mean, it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a long life to work. Don't hurry to get to the end point, right? Enjoy it. Get experience during that time. Because as I tell our students, I've had a lot of fun during my years and worked with sports, worked as clinician, travel, research, academia. It's, you know, you got to have fun. Absolutely. Well, and on that note, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and having such a fun conversation. So thank you so much. And everyone, if you want to get a chance to see Karen speak live, then join us at the Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy. It is in Denmark in August 26th and 27th of this year. And not only will you get to see speakers like yourself, but there's also going to be great networking, um, activity breaks things like yoga or running or uh, walking tours, paddle, uh, paddle boarding, all sorts of fun stuff. So it's not going to be quite your average conference. And a lot of it is going to be clinically focused 
and clinically based. So I think that's really important. I think a lot of times people think, oh, when we go to these conferences, it's going to be researchers just talking about their research and how is that going to affect me clinically? Well, this conference is all about that. So I think, come right? Absolutely agree. Yeah. So come join us in Denmark. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on. And everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.